Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and today on the Roundup for Wednesday, March 16th, 2022, we're going to be answering the following three questions we've been hearing from international educators this past week. First up, how do students view different destination countries? Second, what are the must-dos in international student recruitment? And finally, why aren't U.S. institutions divesting from Russia more quickly? We'll take a look at those three questions and more today on the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. So as we do each week, we take the three questions that we answer on the Roundup from our newsletter that comes out on Monday mornings, 9 a.m. Eastern. If you aren't already subscribed, you can go to smieconsulting.org slash subscribe, enter your details, and we'll get you added to that newsletter mailing list. So you have these ideas fresh in your inbox on Monday morning as you start your work weeks and have a chance to think about what those three themes that we'll cover more in depth here on the Roundup will be. If you'd like a copy of the most recent edition, I'm dropping the link, along with the links for all the stories that we're covering today, into the comments section for the Facebook Live event uh, that we're doing today. So let's get start started with our first question. How do students view different destination countries? This is the kind of thing that when, for those that have uh, been following the Roundup for a while, you know that we talk about our six Ps of strategic international enrollment management. And the first P is perspective. And this kind of perspective, this kind of knowledge on how your competitor destination markets are doing in overall student in impressions and experiences, this helps you better articulate your benefits as, com as compared to other countries, as compared to the U.S. average as a whole or the North American average as a whole. And we're talking specifically today about the International Student Barometer. Uh, for those who have been in the industry a while, you probably are familiar with this. This is put out by iGraduate, uh, and iGraduate, I think, has teamed up with uh, some so another, another organization now uh, to produce these. But uh, they do regularly, through the ISB, kind of experiential reports from students on their impressions of how their country of choice uh, for study has handled uh, different aspects of the student life experience. So they've broken it down into, uh, they've had, in the course of this uh, graduate uh, process uh, for this, this, this series of evaluations, they've gotten over 4 million student responses. Uh, that represent 1,500 different institutions in 40 participating countries from where these students are coming. So they also, through all those student impressions, they break down their analysis into four main areas, UK and Ireland, Europe, Asia, and U.S. and Canada. So interestingly, they don't have one separate for Australia and New Zealand. So interesting to see uh, why that might be. But in terms of what they do cover, uh, each of these four geographic areas in terms of destinations for students is what uh, the focus of the student evaluations is. And I think it's important they don't do country breakdowns beyond UK and Ireland are the only two, the US and Canada are two, but the rest cover entire continents. So there's not really an apples to apples in terms of countries that we can talk about. But what these uh, do represent is kind of a broad, very broad based student representation of how students in students evaluate uh, the US and the UK or uh, Asia or uh, European destinations for their study. 
And the evaluations uh, for this particular round are broken down into these four areas, as I mentioned, four regions, UK and Ireland, Europe, Asia, and US and Canada. So for the North American folks, it just uh, it says North American, but it doesn't include Mexico, interestingly. But uh, what it does say is uh, what it does allow you to get access to uh, you can get the session recording. Uh, you fill out fill out your details for any of the four regions that you want to get the recordings of. It gives you the whys as well as the hows and the whens for the, how the barometer was conducted. It was uh, the webinar that you get access to for the North American higher ed institutions against global performance indexes show are uh, from March uh, when the, when this was recorded. So it's, it is current. What it does give you is overall satisfaction uh, in terms of uh, student satisfaction overall in North America uh, with uh, institutional responses to, to COVID, to uh, value for money, to student work experiences. All of these things are part of what these reports cover. So the barometer is now being done twice a year. Uh, with the first wave in April, May that uh, we're, we're seeing, and then one later in the year. So I think what's important about these is why having this perspective on how the U.S. is viewed, and the U.S., in, in this case, Canada, are viewed by international students around the world. Uh, that gives you an idea of what but what their perspectives of us are as a destination compared to the average. Uh, and what does show from these uh, evaluate these uh, this ISB report in terms of overall satisfaction, uh, the US and Canada do rate very highly, uh, 89% overall satisfaction in North America. And it gives you uh, what that overall number is, but it also tells you how much higher than the global average you are. So that'll tell you uh, comparatively how much better you might be doing than the rest of the world in terms of student perception and experience. So I think it's really, really valuable data to have and uh, just impression data. And these are from student experiences. So these are the folks who've actually come to our campuses, gone to our uh, colleges through our courses, are looking for work and are, the, are at the end of their, their student journeys. So I think it's very useful to have this as part of your evaluation of what should our messaging be. And this is something I, I work with a number of my institutional clients on is when you're developing your core values. The, the, the ironic thing is core, the core values are, are, are very s similar across institution types around the country, but where the differentiators are is how you talk about those values to an international audience. And the kind of value you can pull from an, uh, this ISB report or any of these other uh, kind of global benchmarking of student experiences, not uh, prospective student impressions of what you, your campus might be like or what the U.S. is like as a destination, but overall what, how the U.S. is viewed. Having that as part of your uh, language that you can refer to in some of your messaging about quality of programs, about uh, value for money, about uh, about international uh, climates, uh, about uh, academic integrity, whatever it might be that you you have identified as your values, and how you communicate those values to your international audiences will differ from how you talk about value to an, a U.S. student in a U.S. high school who is eligible for federal financial aid that your international students are not. So. Having that perspective built into how you talk about your values will help you uh, better 
uh, assess your overall messaging and individually your conversations that you have with students to share with uh, them how you are different and how our, we, your college can be a great destination for them. So I think these, this, these benchmarking pieces that uh, where you're looking at uh, how students who have gone through the process, who are living that experience on campus or at the end of their student experience, sharing their experiences, that is data that can really help speak, though it's not going to be specific for your institution, it can help speak to your impressions of what that might look like. So great ideas here from, uh, uh, in terms of, I think, food for thought that you can get out of these uh, in terms of how it impacts your messaging. But I, always, I encourage all of you to check out these recordings uh, for the different regions and particularly the North America ones to really get a sense for how you, your institution type, uh, your, in, your, the, your country is viewed by students who are living, a, living with it here and now. So that's our first question for the day. So having that perspective is going to be a key uh, part, or should be a key part of any institution's international messaging. So on to question two. What are the must-dos in international student recruitment? I talk about this question almost every in every conversation with uh, my, uh, my colleagues on the institutional side as I do my consults, as I have these one-on-one -on -one calls with individuals who are just trying to get a sense of what, what am I missing? Uh, take a look at what we're doing, see if we're missing any holes in terms of our approach to recruitment, in terms of um, messaging, in terms of uh, countries we might be overlooking, in terms of uh, recruitment strategies in particular countries. And this is a topic that it's where the rubber meets the road, right? In terms of you can have the best idea, you can have a well-thought-out strategic plan, but unless you have the in implementation and follow-up pieces in place to make your uh, recruitment efforts and plans worthwhile, uh, you miss you miss the whole point. And I think the um, the what I've what I've seen over the years uh, in terms of the must dos of international student recruitment, I see a lot of people who who take. Um, uh, who, who will take the stance that we need to be front and center wherever our target audiences are. We need to have a presence there. We need to be in country. We need to be on the road. And then the pandemic came along and look what happened. Uh, it's changed everybody's plans. If you weren't already fully virtual, you became so quickly. And for the better part of two years, that was your approach. Uh, and very only very recently have institutions been able to even uh, think about going overseas and doing it in a very targeted way and uh, maybe single country or region specific tours rather than uh, globe trotting for two or three weeks or a month when you might be facing all sorts of testing and uh, quarantine protocols that you, even if you're fully vaccinated, that you might need to uh, accommodate in your scheduling. So I think planning is important. Absolutely have to think about something before you do it. Uh, it's just good advice no matter what you're doing in life. Uh, but it it also requires uh, to be successful to, to, in terms of must-dos. You want to have something that goes a little bit further than that. you got to have a better uh, overall perspective on things that you have uh, an, an opportunity to really uh, approach uh, your vision 
for uh, where you want your institution to be on a, on a strategic in a strategic way, but also in ways that allow you to achieve goals that you set out and to do it efficiently and effectively. Uh, what I've done uh, recently, uh, there's a series I've just started with uh, IDP Connect. Uh, one of the folks I've been working with for about four years now, uh, that looks at, it's called International Education Leaders Share. Uh, Intel Ed Leaders Share is the hashtag for it. Uh, I've done, uh, did a, a video version uh, interview with uh, Patrice Campbell at uh, Millersville University in Pennsylvania uh, before, the, before Christmas, but that video hasn't been released yet. But the first article uh, was with an interview I did with Samira Pardanani at uh, Shoreline Community College uh, in Washington, uh, Washington State. And uh, Samira's been in the business almost 25 years now, uh, and so she, uh, much of that has been at Shoreline where she's risen to associate vice president level at that community college. Uh, for uh, student services and international education. So she's uh, been a, a leader in NAFSA for years and very well, well regarded in the field. And uh, as far as community college leaders in international ed goes, uh, she's right up there with the best. So I had the chance to interview her about some of her thoughts on these kind of must-dos, uh, what and the impact of the pandemic and that type of thing. Uh, she had a really imp important um, uh, perspective on this that I think is important uh, is useful to bring up as we talk about must dos. Uh, I think she's realized that uh, business as usual uh, is uh, no longer a thing uh, when it comes to student recruitment, and that uh, returning to normal it might be coming, and or at many campuses might be there. Uh, the reality is there's they really will never entirely go back. I don't think to uh, the same way uh, U.S. colleges were pre-pandemic. And what I think has happened is the successes uh, that you, you have had as an institution often, and particularly when the rest of the, when you might be, it might be going against the flow in terms of where your campus is compared to uh, competitors. Uh, it's, it's important to keep in, in, in place a couple of kind of guiding principles that you need to, and Samira does does say this quite well in her her, in her interview. Uh, she says that it yes, the pandemic changed how we recruit students, but it forced us. Uh, if you weren't already, it forced us to become innovative in how we approached. Uh, as uh, innovation is the mother of invention, or mother of invention, mo in mother of invention is innovation. Uh, one of those two. Uh, but anyway, and it forces you to innovate, and it forces you to become more agile than you were potentially already. And those two traits, being innovative and agile, and how you approach international student recruitment, are ones that I think put put you in good standing for how you will ad adjust to uh, to the kinds of uh, challenges, frankly, we have in international education. And certainly the pandemic was probably the largest single thing that threw everything into off kilter for, uh, for international educators uh, around the world, but certainly well beyond our, our international education sphere, the whole country, the whole globe had been impacted this, so far by this, by this pandemic. Not the first global event to do that. 9-11 certainly had long-ranging implications for uh, how we recruited uh, internationally. Uh, after that happened in 2001, uh, it took many years, four or five years, before we really regained strength uh, of our, our initial positions. That might be a little bit quicker this time around than uh, than uh, than what happened in 9/11. But uh, you certainly see 
that the kind of recruiting you do now uh, is is different. Uh, there will still be a need and I, 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 for virtual events, and I think um, it's a, there's a, I know many of my colleagues who uh, have their uh, their tour businesses that their in-person tour companies that they've had for years. Uh, they had to do a very radical sh- sh- rethink about how they were going to approach things during the pandemic. They all went to various uh, providers, either came up with their own platforms or partnered with another f- uh, another platform to build uh, an online option for individuals that wanted to recruit students in countries that they previously had expertise in or were doing physical tours to. Uh, There are those, some of those folks are already transitioning back to in-person tours this spring. And I think that's, um, that's a real positive that they are able to do that. But the question will be, I think, in terms of the demand, uh, the demand from institutions who still want to be able to recruit virtually because they know they're, they're not going to be uh, trotting the globe ever uh, in any time anytime soon to recruit students because, frankly, that's not them. They don't have the bandwidth. They don't have the budget. They don't have uh, the real desire to do that. Uh, that that might come longer term, but uh, coming out of the pandemic, there's a lot of folks that are gun shy in terms of what the implications are for travel uh, during, which is still a pandemic. There's now the uh, the the Delta Omicron variant, the Delta Delcrom or Delta Crom or something like that, Del Delcrom, uh, Del Delmocrom, whatever that new variant of that's a combination of uh, Omicron and Delta is now a thing, and uh, starting in Hong Kong and uh, making its way around the world. There's cases in the U.S. already. Is it going to be anywhere near as severe? Are the vaccines going to be as effective as they have been? All of those questions are starting to percolate back up. But I think the need for virtual options is still going to be there. Whether or not uh, the providers that have been doing them in the interim will continue. We already know that folks like FPP, EduMedia, they've committed to going completely virtual. That's all they're going to do now. Uh, Certainly there's going to be some that you can rely on that have become and developed very good reputations for fares during the pandemic that uh, there's still going to be a demand. Uh, People are still going to be needing that. Uh, It's from the institution side and maybe not as much from the student side, but you're going to see, still see that as a that is a, as a, a real focus, I think, for a lot of institutions' attention when it comes to recruitment moving forward. So Samir's article, I'm dropping the link to that in the comments section on the Facebook page as well for the Facebook Live event we're doing today. But I do want to also share what she, how she, when she talks about recruiting, uh, she uh, pays particular attention to SEO. She has a, 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 a marketing team that focuses on this, what the serv- using particularly gen search ser- services, uh, social media marketing, virtual fairs are part of her her, her piece. Uh, they have translated information uh, that they've uh, they have on their on their website in twelve languages. Uh, that the content that they have is much more dynamic, much more user friendly for students. So we're really interested to see where where and she p- makes a very very st- strong point about uh, the need to um, to have a variety of sources and not just put all your eggs in one basket when it comes to either. Uh, they obviously Shoreline has has used agents for a number of years. That's a part of their function too. They mention that as part of. Uh, 
their strategy, but it's one piece. It's not a sole, single, single silver bullet approach. Uh, they attend all the conferences, NAFSA, Education USA, International ACAC, all of these. They do their research through Open Doors. So she, the article really, I think, is a great summation of how you can do it and do it well uh, when it comes to uh, international student recruitment. A second piece uh, that I, I, I'm including in this mix is uh, one by an old colleague of mine, Stephen Boyd, uh, formerly of uh, University of Bridgeport, before that University of New Haven. Uh, he's now um, at uh, Unification Theological Seminary as uh, a Dean of Enrollment uh, and member, uh, and he's uh, written an article for Uniquest that's entitled Successful International Recruitment, Some Factors to Consider. And he goes through, uh, and he's a, he's a longtime vet at numerous institutions and has a really good perspective on things. And he identifies three essential elements for him uh, that are key to success in the long term. First is the foundational build your team. Uh, and that's uh, if it's one or two, three, three people within an admissions office, that I have international responsibilities as part of their portfolio, or two or three if you're in a larger institution that has a, a, a already an established presence in, overseas, might have two or three recruiters doing that for you. Uh, but then it's also the, the team. The team is not just the front end folks. It's the backroom staff that are processing applications. It's uh, the folks that are doing your social media. It's uh, any of your uh, marketing team on campus that might be helping with different parts of, your, of what you do on the recruitment side. It will be uh, with uh, alumni uh, and students that you might be partnering with. So Stephen makes a great point in terms of uh, talking about the importance of that team. And so it's not just all, hopefully all on one person. Even if you are a one-person office, doesn't mean you have to do it all alone uh, or should do it all alone or can do it all alone. Uh, you need help. And if some of those resources may be on campus, some of them will not be. But it's, it's in terms of knowing what you, uh, what you need to know. And if you're a manager, certainly part of that puzzle is for those that you do have on your team, whether as employees or as volunteers, it's knowing each other's strengths, uh, each of your members' strengths. And help, uh, and help to kind of direct them accordingly to parts of your recruitment plan that make the most sense for where you want your institution to be longer term. So in addition to the t uh, having, building your team, it's serving your students and your staff. And that's uh, being stu student-centered is kind of, a, uh, uh, kind of an odd phrase to say sh we should be. Of course, we yeah, in student recruitment, you should be student-focused, but not everybody is, unfortunately. And that means um, responding to prospective students' needs and desires and wants and that type of thing and not make it all about you and not make it uh, just, oh, here goes another student saying the same thing I've heard for the 15th time today, but actually answering it honestly and openly and just uh, making sure that your students are seeing that you're going that extra mile. But it also means that your staff need to be taken care of too because uh, like for example the pandemic infected everybody and uh, and everybody not everybody handled it as the same way some people went down some very dark to dark rabbit holes and uh, places in their lives and uh, took takes time to come back some people who feed off social interaction and didn't have that for the better part of a year or more uh, when they weren't in on campus uh, to have regular staff meetings or interactions with people uh, folks in person uh, that 
it has a toll, takes a toll on you. So caring for your staff is as important as serving your students uh, and making sure that everybody is okay to do what they need to do. And a final piece that Stephen talks about is partnering in a highly competitive industry. And this is something that certainly when I first started in the profession and Stephen and Samira both have uh, long careers as well, that international education, international student recruitment was a very different beast back in the, in the early mid 90s than it is today. Uh, there are so many more players on the world stage in terms of competitor countries, competitor institutions within each of those countries that are going for the same students and maybe a different kind of student that might be coming to your institution, but they're all out there actively recruiting students from overseas. And that uh, acknowledging that and knowing that we're in, is, is goes back to that perspective argument I was talking about at the beginning, knowing what the competition are doing, uh, knowing that we're in a business that it's not just a student that you're recruiting might also be applying to your your uh, large state university neighbor or your private college uh, elite selective pri private college near you. Your competitors are all around the world, uh, and it's just uh, that perspective should change the way you talk about your institution or how you uh, position yourself in the market. Uh, that uh, it, and it's important that you're in partnering with uh, uh, with people with others that can help you get where you need to be because you can't do it all on your own anymore. And I don't think you ever could really effectively. But uh, you need providers. Uh, you need uh, in-country reps, whether that be through uh, age, educational agents you sign up or Education USA representatives you work with for presentations or alumni uh, or school officials that you do virtual events with. You need a global network to be effective in your target markets. So knowing that you need that kind of global network, uh, that you have developed partners that are on the same page as you in terms of process, in terms of uh, what your uh, goals are as an institution, that matters. And uh, when you take it in a, in the, as a whole, and you take uh, the approach that if, if I don't have the right partners, I'm gonna be missing out. I, I will not be as effective as I could be in particular markets. So I think that's really key moving forward that, um, uh, in any, if particularly if you're in a leadership role in, in an international office, that you have that kind of approach that, hey, we're not going to be able to do this on our own. Not even our, in, our all of, if we put all our resources together on campus, are we going to be able to do it on our own? We need help from outside. And that could be uh, parents of current students, that could be the agents, that could be EDUSA, that could be secondary school counselor networks, that could be travel that you do, that could be service providers that give you uh, translations of your content in different, uh, different languages. It could be uh, having someone who handles, uh, provides a platform where you have, where you can have uh, conversations with students in particular countries. So all of those things are, are valuable to have and knowing that you, you're your network of who is a part of your team, unofficially or unofficially, is is have is is a realization that it goes far beyond just your campus-based team. If you're going to be truly successful and truly engaged on a number of different levels uh, in successfully recruiting students and keeping them. So our final question of the day: Why aren't U.S. institutions divesting from Russia? This is a question that's starting to bug me. Uh, we've seen what's happened in Ukraine. We've seen how uh, 
now over 300 companies have joined in their divestment efforts from businesses that they are doing or business that they have either in the country of Russia or uh, doing business by buying Russian goods, whatever it might be. We've seen over 300 companies now uh, that have committed to divesting from Russia. We've had global sanctions applied by the Western world and a number of uh, other key partners around the world, but not all. Uh, we've seen um, Seen the BRICS uh, trying to, I mentioned the BRIC countries last time. Uh, we're talking Brazil, we're talking um, Russia, obviously, uh, India, China, and South Africa. None of those countries have joined in the global, global sanctions against Russia. But what we have seen is generally across the, at the association level in the United States and in Europe, we've seen associations of institutions. Uh, we talked about the uh, European research institutions last week kicking out 12 members of uh, the Russian member institutions from their body because of uh, their, the rectors of those institutions signing a, a letter of support for President Putin's uh, invasion, uh, special military operation. Uh, so we've seen universities in, uh, in Europe start to move against uh, ties. And in Europe, it's harder. Frankly, it's a lot harder because they have closer economic and financial relationships with institutions in, uh, in, Europe, in Russia and uh, because of their geographic proximity. But we also have universities that have stood up um, and started to say, hey, we are... We are cutting our ties with any uh, European uh, companies uh, or institutions that we have relationships with. You've seen, as I mentioned last week, MIT st st stood up on the day after the invasion to get uh, uh, to end ties with uh, an institute they had begun in Russia. You've seen Stanford also say that they're going to be div divesting uh, from Russian ties, uh, and. Other than some billionaires, I think there are four oligarchs that uh, have donated significant sums to, uh, to uh, U.S. institutions. Those were profiled in the Chronicle article last week, and that's on, in the newsletter as well. But there has, outside of the associations, you have, and a couple of uh, outliers at the top level, you have not seen a big push by individual institutions putting out uh, state, uh, summary statements on how their institution stands with relation to relations with uh, Russian institutions, uh, divesting uh, in their, from their endowments uh, from any Russian sources, uh, returning gifts from uh, Russian oligarchs that might be under sanction in other countries and should be under sanction here in the U.S. as well with the seizure of assets and, and property and yachts and all the wonderful things that are happening. Even football clubs in, in England are, are being seized as a result. Uh, so there are steps that haven't been taken by U.S. institutions that frankly leave me a little bit a little bit wondering what's going on. Uh, granted, there aren't too many institutions that have a huge amount of academic ties uh, with Russian institutions, and there might be the odd one here or there, but uh, campuses I work, work with, um, I don't think we've had more than uh, five or six campuses I've worked with in the last couple of years. I think there's only been one of them that had any institutional relationships with Russia. There haven't been a lot to say, uh, to divest from, or to separate, uh, cut agreements, cut ties with. 
But uh, this is these. I, I, I'm asking this now. Are there are these conversations happening on your campus? And it's just not getting into the press. Uh, I'd be interested to see. You know, we saw we see the uh, when pandemic hit, we saw the 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 the, the running list of institutions that have uh, gone online for the fall term in 2020. Uh, what that might look like? Who's going to be hybrid? Who's going to be in person? All of that. I'd love to see uh, a similar list tracking institutions who are cutting ties with uh, with Russia either and so it could be a number of things cutting ties with Russian institutions uh, cutting uh, cutting uh, divesting any anything in their endowments from Russian sources and returning any gifts they've gotten from Russian sources uh, any of these oligarchs that are under threat are under sanction so I wonder about that and it's uh, be interesting to see if someone gets it in their head to put that kind of a list together because I think that would be very telling and as to why the US uh, higher community hasn't institutionally gotten on board with uh, where a lot of other institutions are, are in other parts of the world have so uh, really interesting to see what goes on next uh, in terms of uh, there's a long, long, a lot of things that can and will happen in Russia and Ukraine uh, before this is over. But certainly a lot of um, a lot of moves uh, to for colleges to start thinking seriously about divestiture from Russian uh, affiliations uh, in institutionally, in economic, uh, uh, in endowments, and in terms of uh, uh, investments that they might have received or gifts they might have received. So we'll see where those goes, uh, those uh, issues go, but we'll certainly keep you posted on the, our takes on them here on the Roundup. But until next week, that's all we have for you uh, for the Midweek Roundup for March 16th. Uh, we look forward to chatting with you again very soon. Cheers.